0: Ride on my motorcycle hey there this is episode 41 of the noco moto podcast we enjoyed another one of our 300 days of sunshine here in northern colorado i'm your host moto g pete and with me is your other host swiggy yep all right let's talk bikes We're returning to form here and we've just got another just totally regular episode for you, and we're gonna start with an email that we got. So we got an email from man, I am going to butcher this name, Vladimir Gorevsky. Gorsevsky. Gorsev Vladimir Gorsevsky. There we go. It's called Keep Up the Good Job, and it says Hello guys. I'm a big fan of your podcast. I discovered you guys, like many others, from the Motorcycle Life podcast. I want to tell you that you guys are doing a very good job with the podcast. I believe that I've listened 90% of your episodes. Soon I will be up to 100%. I like, not love, the Best Worst Bike segment. You doing a great job with it, educating us about all kinds of different bikes. The reason why I don't love it is, and not your fault, because when you introduce a new bike, I often wonder how the bike looks like. Because I'm a visual person, I want to at least know how the bike looks before start to form an opinion about it. I listen to the podcast while I drive. I'm an over-the-road truck driver, and it's hard for me to Google it while driving, I found myself often starting the podcast, listen to the introduction of the bike, then pausing till my next plane stop.
1: Plan stop.
0: Plan stop. That's what it was. Yeah. Googling the bike and then restarting the podcast. Weird. I know everything else is just great. You guys make my miles go a lot faster and I appreciate that. Okay. I want to pause on the email here just a little bit and say, so if you have an iPhone, You can just bring up the in the show notes on your phone a link to the pictures of at least the best and worst bike. We always stick those in there at least. So you can just click on that real quick and you know sort of follow along looking at a picture of what we're talking about. Just a reminder to everybody. We are working on a website which may have more uh detailed show notes, but as of right now, it's just kind of the show notes that are linked to the episode in your iPhone thing, majig, you know, what's the, the, the podcast app is just called podcast app for Apple, isn't it? It's it not is, creatively yeah. named, but whatever. If you have a different kind of phone or you're listening on something else, I don't know how well that information comes up. I don't think it works on Android phones. Does it? It doesn't work on your phone, does it, Swiggy? Uh
1: I have never pulled up the podcast on my phone before. Oh, okay. Um, I do know unfortunately in iTunes on the on the desktop, it does scrub the links. Yeah. Which is lame.
0: Yeah, but again, we're working on a website, so that might get solved for some people, but just wanted to throw that in there. All right, back to the email. It says, Let me tell you a little bit about myself. First, my name is Vladimir. Originally, I'm from Eastern Europe, the small country of Macedonia. But since 1999, I live in Chicagoland in the suburbs. Started riding just recently. I always wanted to have a bike, but for one reason or another, never got to it. 2016 August, for my 40th birthday, my wife decided to buy me a motorcycle. She picked up a used BMW, old retired police bike. I uh, it was in great shape, but I said no to that bike immediately. All right, pause. <laughs> Vladimir, I'm speaking to you directly. Let me get this straight. Without telling you, your wife went out and bought you a BMW, and you said, "No, thanks." Wow, I don't know if you're the craziest person that has ever uh, contacted me, or you are an absolute hero and a god amongst men. I, 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 if my wife bought me a motorcycle, I would be so over the moon. It, it, it wouldn't matter what kind of motorcycle it is, it wouldn't matter the condition, the year, the miles, the power anything i would just i would have to pinch myself because we would be living in some sort of strange alternate reality that i'm not comfortable with like i i don't think i could lucid dream my wife buying me a motorcycle <laughs> right you know like My mind would go to places instead where I'm like riding uh, some sort of like roller coaster that doesn't require tracks with shaved head Britney Spears riding shotgun and we're both slamming heroin before I thought up of the crazy idea of my wife buying me a motorcycle as a surprise. Okay. So that immediately makes this one of the most legendary emails that we have ever received right there. But let's get into this because some more interesting stuff comes up here. So he said, no thanks to that immediately. And he said, I said to her, let me get my motorcycle license first and then we will pick a bike. So a month later, after finishing the riding school and obtaining my motorcycle license, I picked a 2014 Honda CTX 700 N brand new from a dealership near me. It was one of those leftover bikes and I got it for 5,500 out the door with the plates on it. All right. Pause again. Amazing deal. Like, wow. Honda kind of has this weird thing right now where they're not really doing model year bikes. They sort of just make a huge run of bikes. And then they just sell them. So rather than just continuing to make them exactly the same, but putting the next model year name on it. So there's these like, you know, 2014, 2016 Honda bikes sitting around, which are current bikes, but they're kind of difficult for dealers to sell because people think, well, this is just an old bike. It doesn't matter that no one's ever bought it. It's an old bike. It's not you know i'm not buying a 2019 something for my money here so they're selling them for like no money it's crazy like
1: i want to at some point we got to we got to reach out and try and get some numbers and some some stories of people who have owned the the 700 cc parallel twin models
0: yeah the honda fit half yeah. engine thing
1: well no the um well just the the seven hundred parallel twin and like the NC seven hundred X and then the yeah the it's, all, it's all a
0: Honda Fit motor just half of it
1: right I want to I need to find out who how, what people have owned these and what they paid for them what they sold them for and how long they had them because it, this seems to be a bike that changes hands fairly rapidly.
0: Yeah, I've only known a couple people, well, not even really known. I've only met a couple people that have had them, but they've been pretty happy with them because it's a different kind of buyer. This I, is a I've bike known... that's a tool more than a straight up pleasure craft.
1: Right. I've known people who have had them. I have never met somebody who currently owned one.
0: Ah, uh, okay. Well, anyway, so he got this CTX 700N. So right away, Vlad's, you know, march into his own, his own beat, his own drum right here. Cause. Like you said, it's not a bike a lot of people buy new and, you know, kind of lust after. So anyway, he got that for 5500 out the door. And he had it for 10 months. He liked the bike. And he says, but I realized that for me and what I wanted to do, it was too small. So back to the Honda dealer. And he upgraded to a 2014 CTX 1300 Deluxe with the ABS traction control, the sound system. Again, a, a leftover brand new bike and it was 50% off. This bike is my current ride and I love it. And that is bringing me to a question or an idea for best worst bike. Price of the bike. The CTX 1300 Deluxe was selling for 17 and a half thousand MSRP when it came on the market. But when he picked it up again, it was 8,900 out the door. 10 and a half about. For the original price, he would not have considered buying the bike, he says, but for 50%, he did, and he loves it. Also, the Yamaha SCR 950 that was featured recently, you guys said the MSR price was 8,600, but the local Yamaha dealer is selling it for 5,400. Setup and destination fee included. A dealer in Nashville, Illinois selling one for 39 ninety nine but there's no setup and destination fee in that. So does the price of the bike change how we see a bike worst or best? All right, absolutely, absolutely it does. Now an SCR 950 for four grand essentially four and a half after you do all the setup and dealer and whatever, yeah if that was just the regular price, Every day.
1: Uh, the bike's still a liar. The bike <laughs>
0: is still a liar, but that would significantly change my view of that motorcycle. That would change
1: the equation. But
0: you can't guarantee getting that price is the only issue there. So if you do find those little diamonds in the rough, of course. You know, a, a story I tell a lot of people about with, you know, one of the, okay, one of the most legendary vehicles in my vehicle history was recently I had to get rid of my 88 Silverado about three years ago my Civic just died the transmission went and it was too expensive to fix it for what the car was worth and I picked up an 88 Silverado with like 140,000 miles on it from a gay couple and they were like, yeah, this truck really doesn't suit our lifestyle. And I was like, yeah, I get that. You know, a 2500, four by four eighties pickup truck. That's not really your lifestyle. Cool. And so, so it was like, well, how much do you want for this? And they just saw no value in this truck, even though it was a perfectly working truck. Well, I had to do a little to get it to pass emissions, but there wasn't really anything significantly wrong with it. I put like a hundred bucks into, you know, fix the uh the AGR valve and muffler, whatever, did the work myself. Hundred bucks, got to pass emissions, and then the thing was just rock solid for three years, no issues whatsoever. And I paid they I asked them what they wanted for it, and they said, Oh, how about like seven hundred and fifty dollars? And, you know, about half an hour later I'd cash for them. I was like, I want this truck right now, please. Because I wasn't driving very much at the time, and, you know, four-wheel drive, winter, everything, I had the extended cab, I could put the kids in the car seats in, I could haul all this stuff for work. It was fine. I didn't care that it only got 16 miles per gallon, because I wasn't driving it all that much. I was riding my motorcycle most of the time, like I still do. And... Then someone took the door out of it in a parking lot, which was super scary because I was standing inside the door at the time, strapping my daughter into it, and I got 1600 bucks in insurance. So I paid our uh, local friendly mechanic $1,000 to fix the door, and in that $1,000, I also got a new bed and body panels all around the truck. Because it had some rust and whatever. So I got rid of all the rust, got the door fixed. So then I was only in this truck for like a hundred and fifty dollars for three years of ownership. And you know, eventually it got to a point where the radiator started leaking. It was gonna be like four hundred bucks for that. There's a wheel bearing going, it needed an oil change and new tires, all separate. Anyway, so the point is yes. An eighty-eight Silverado truck is objectively a terrible vehicle, but for hundred and fifty dollars, it's the greatest thing ever.
1: Now so, the SCR nine fifty still does not get a pass because that bike is still a liar. Okay, but but yes, price does factor heavily in. For me, in particular, you know, if you have a bike that is you know the absolute budget version and it absolutely meets a certain price point, and fits a certain person, then it can be the best bike in the world. It doesn't matter if it's mediocre performance, as long as it fills some some spot in somebody's life that no other bike can, and price can be a valid reason as to why a bike doesn't fit into somebody's life. You could have a bike that was technically better spec-wise, but was way more expensive, and in my book, that's a worse bike. Yeah. And then similarly, if there's a, a a slightly more expensive bike that's slightly worse, that's worst bike in the world candidate right there. Even though compared to some other fairly average bikes, it might be better in all other ways, if there is no reason to buy it because there's one other bike that hits all the other points slightly better, then it doesn't fit in anywhere.
0: Yeah. All right, so let's move on to the last part of this email. He just says on another note, he's becoming a bikeaholic, And since purchasing the CTX-1300, he wanted to learn more about bikes and maintenance and mechanics. So he started buying old, non-running bikes. He says, I've got a small garage, and I set it up for a small bike shop. And in the last 18 months, and this is really good. He says, I picked up a 2006 Honda Rebel. A 1990 Kawasaki EN 450, which I'm not super familiar with. That must be just be the predecessor to the Ninja 500, right? And then he's got uh, two Suzuki GZ250s, package deal. One with the title, the other's just parts. And then the last purchase was an 84 Honda Goldwing Standard and an 83 Goldwing Aspencade, which is just parts again, a package deal. None of the bike's in riding condition, but he's managed to fix up the Rebel and the Suzuki uh, GZ250, and now on the schedule is the 84 Honda Goldwing. All right, one of us, one of us, one of us. I love this. Now, I can tell you that your biggest issue with the Goldwings is going to be wiring. Man... Yeah, if you can become like a Goldwing guy and a Goldwing expert, there's just a never ending stream of 80s and 90s Goldwings and stuff that you can just pick up for a few hundred bucks each all day long. And you can just keep Frankensteining them together and replacing parts and taking little bits of each of them as long as you got a good frame and a title. But man, it it has to be a a labor of love and you have to really be into it. Uh of course I recommend just ripping off all the stuff that made the Aspencade the Aspencade and put it on the standard and roll with that and that's a pretty cool bike but that's going to be a lot of work but it sounds like you kind of have the time, the space, the money and the motivation. So Vlad hats off to you. You are pretty cool in our book, besides being a a hero for telling your wife to just kick rocks when she bought (laughs) you a motorcycle. And then and then you know getting into and then picking this really weird bike, the CTX thirteen hundred. Um, not a lot of people are familiar with that. That's the engine, that's the V four engine out of the ST thirteen hundred. And kind of something that's sort of in between a sports tour and a Goldwing. It's a, it's a really unusual bike. Um, I would have one over the ST 1300 for sure. It definitely would suit me better. I feel like if I lived in Europe or something, the CTX 700 would be more my speed, but on American highways, I totally feel you. The 1300, that's got monster torque. Um, it's definitely fast enough. It's got all the amenities. It's got loads of luggage space. It's super comfortable. And if you love the bike and you feel cool on it, then you are living the dream, my friend. And thank you so much for the email. All right, cool. So moving on from there, the moment everyone's been waiting for, we're getting back to just good old fashioned best worst bikes in the world this week. Okay. So again, if you're a new listener, here's the deal. Every week we pick two bikes and we alternate who's picking the best and the worst bike in the world this week. So don't get your feelings hurt if you disagree either way with the best or worst. There's going to be a new best or worst next week. And as Liza said famously, there's no crying in motorcycles. So don't send us a horrible email about how we trashed on the bike that you own, because it's just for one week, and when you really get down to it, it's really just a fun vehicle for us to talk about two different bikes that you might not normally take a second look at. So, with that said, Swiggy here is going first, and he is going to do Best Bike in the World this week, picking up our rotation. You ready to reveal it? Yep. Okay, here we go.
1: The Best Bike in the World this week is the CB750 Nighthawk. Oh, any specific year? We're just going to go with the first year, the 91.
0: Uh no, this this bike right. started before 91. Sorry, not
1: right, we're we're going with the 91.
0: I believe this bike goes back to 1980.
1: It does, but this is when it came back.
0: Okay, so the redesigns what you're going with. Yeah. Now, I'm going to I'm going to put something out there just to just to, you know, Make sure the air's clear. My first bike was an eighty-three CB six hundred and fifty Nighthawk. Well, actually, I believe the designation, it the official name is the Honda CB SC seven hundred and fifty Nighthawk. It's a mouthful.
1: So yeah, let's dig into this because I love these bikes. So this bike is—you really can't get much more simple much simpler than this for a 90s bike yep it's a basic dual cradle frame it's an air cooled inline four i think it might have a it's got the tiny little oil cooler like the piddliest oil cooler of all time that all yeah, the, the 750s had um single front disc drum rear beyond that it's got a giant fuel tank uh, it's like
0: four and a half gallons i think
1: 4.7 gallons. Yep, there we go. And just a buttload of power and a lot of range. Right. Uh, now, they did put the silly um, uh, air-assisted suspension on this, which is a little bit of a mark against it. But,
0: um, uh, yeah, mine, I don't think, had the air suspension... But that was more of a, a later thing that they put on. Well, I don't know because my CB900 was an 81, I think, and that had the air suspension. But anyway, that's kind of a different mm-hmm. bike, but also not. So the misconception with these is that people think this is just what the Honda CB750 turned into. And that is actually not correct. It is not just the dual overhead cam motor that people that the, that the, that the later honda cbs uh were through the 80s and whatever yeah this is this not a is square different.
1: motor this is a somewhat over square motor so and it's a bit more performance oriented
0: and the valves are different they're different valve size and uh this has hydraulic self-adjusting valves like cars do mm-hmm. so it's a very low maintenance bike and It has a couple other things. It's a different frame than the, than the seventy, the late seventies, early eighties Honda CBs were. And the styling's very different. There were a lot of bikes that copied this. This is the first one I'm aware of where they just kind of went sport bike for the back half of it and classic standard for the front.
1: This is the mullet of motorcycles.
0: That is – I've never made that comparison before, but that is perfect. This is the mullet of motorcycles. And Honda made a lot of bikes like this in Europe and everything. Even, like, recently, up through, like, 2011 and 12, there was, like, the CB1300 that was, like, exactly this format. Double cradle frame big in line 4 sport back standard front and this is just sort of what Honda decided to call their standard motorcycle and it was and they gave it this name the Nighthawk cuz Europe was kind of really into this look and America never so much but it's basically what a standard motorcycle just turned into for the 90s more or yeah.
1: less and this is kind of a this is kind of a bit of a a bit of a missing link you know it, it's the it's the middle child between the classic jap, you know ujm and kind of the modern standard which you know it's it's it, it was kind of a, a jump up not so much a huge jump up in horsepower but for the size and the price it definitely is this is roughly this is so this is 91 this was four thousand dollars okay which is about $7200 today so yeah totally re- we're talking yeah fco7 money yeah and it's it was 75 horsepower and 47 foot pounds of torque
0: that actually sounds low is that like a dyno or is that what it actually was cuz i believe my 83 650 was making like 81 horsepower claimed
1: uh well it depends on how what they actually put down on the spec sheet here whether it's at the crank or not but i've got here 75 horsepower and 47 foot pounds of torque either way
0: for a 750 that's good numbers especially for the time and that is enough to break 120 miles an hour do it very quickly and competently get you around any semi you want to pull mad wheelies all over the place and generally just never Not really notice a lack of power much until you start getting north of 90 miles an hour. You might start to notice a little slowing and acceleration there.
1: And this is basically a 91. This is equivalent, you know, horsepower per dollar figures as the MTO7, as a CBR 650F. Yep. You know, it's right in that price range, but 30 years ago. Yeah. But yeah, it was a super simple bike. Not much to go wrong with it. Did a great job. Gave you you know, 200 miles of range. And there's a lot of bikes that people are still riding today that follow essentially this same model, just with dual front discs and ABS and a liquid-cooled motor. But for the most part, this overall styling... When you, you know, when you transpose that this is a sport rear from the time and a fairly standard front from the time and you transpose that on top of, say, uh, the MT-09 or onto the, uh, onto the Z900. Yeah. Really, it's all kind of in the same vein as what this bike was.
0: Yeah, it's very true Yeah, this this
1: would have been the Z nine hundred of its time, and at the same time, you can still find quite a few of these in relatively good condition. Oh, they're
0: absolutely cheap as chips. I mean, eight hundred bucks in like good running condition, right? Even in places where bikes are normally more expensive, like Denver, these are just basically free motorcycles for you know uh, they, yeah. They are worth more money not running than they are running. You know, as parts bikes, you can just split these out and make a lot more money. If someone just gives you one of these, it's almost worth less than free because you're like, well, it would have been better just to receive an engine and a titled frame a rolling frame and just sell those off on parts on eBay. Right. It's, yeah, these are almost disposable motorcycles, but, but if you just dig it and you want to go with it, cool. Now, what I love about this bike and have always loved about these bikes, the Nighthawks, even from the eighties ones and these, these nineties ones is that this was sort of an, like you said, this is a transition era for Honda. When you think about the nineties, what Honda was doing What's iconic? What's really kept around? Well, there's the Fireblade, of course, and there's the Goldwing, right? But what else from this time was really notable? Not much. This is sort of a halfway period. And Honda was figuring out, you know, who it was, what kind of company and what kind of bikes they were going to make going into the next century, And so this doesn't look like a Honda, except it does because no one really went this hard on this look. And Honda in the early 80s and even late 70s had been doing some experimental things with, like, the Comstar wheels and whatever. But that was sort of, like, you know, very quietly with, like, the CB400, you know, the Prince motorcycle and whatever. And this is really the moment, this bike, where Honda just sort of came out of the closet. With with the mag wheels and was yeah. like, yep, this is who we are now. Spoked wheels, that's that's part of the past. You're just gonna have to just accept who we are for who we are now. Everything's got that. And this bike was really the first one that was just like, boom, we're going all mags all the time, deal with it. And then just again, radically different styling changes. Honda going, look, we can't just keep making things that look like the CB seven fifty forever. <laughs> Because, you know, the CB750, if you look at all those CB models, they all just kind of look the same from the 60s and 70s and even very early 80s. Yeah, the the CB350, the 450, the 500, the 550, the 650, the 750, you know, even to a certain extent, the early GL1000s all went through this Honda cookie cutter design philosophy right. aesthetically. And for their standard street bikes, the Nighthawk specifically broke the mold on that. And even if you don't really dig the way that this looked, it's kind of like the uh, the Z900 right now. It blazed the way for a whole new aesthetic in motorcycles. The other manufacturers did catch on to, notably like Yamaha with like the Seika and other things like that. But, you know, that look was quickly overtaken with the sport bikes, the fully fared sport bike look of the time, which engineering wise, I mean, if you think about a Katana, it's very, very similar to this bike in how it's built. It's just covered up with the ugliest fairings of all time. But this bike, its strength was, well, it's not going to pretend to be a sport bike like the Katana. It's going to have similar engineering and it's going to have similar power, but it's just going to be this sort of new kind of standard bike. And so it's it's important to the time, but it's also just the best bike in the world, I think, because just right to this day, it's still a totally usable motorcycle and you can get them for basically free.
1: Right. Yeah. It made sense then and it still makes sense now. I love this.
0: Again, it was my first motorcycle. I think I paid $700 for my 650. It had like 11,000 miles on it, and there was not a damn thing wrong with it. Not a single thing. I just put a new battery in it, and off I went. And it was badass. Also, this bike was also a holdout on one little weird styling element that Honda had forever, starting probably with the CB750, and that's the dual horns mounted underneath the front headlight. Oh, yeah. That was a big Honda look for a long time, and I think this is the last bike that Honda really sported that on, the two horns just right out front. They started, yeah, hiding them in different places, Very soon after this. I mean, on like the CB350 and all the old 305s, they were kind of slung off to the side behind the forks. A little bit below the steering head. But on this one and a lot of the other CBs, like the 750, just two big, big old horns right underneath the light, just pointing straight out. Very distinct, very Honda.
1: Although I think if you buy one used today... If it's got over 20,000 miles, there's at least a 50% chance that one of them is dead.
0: Yeah, but I but there the are two horns that are, I think, slightly larger each individually than a lot of standard horns at the time, and there's two of them. So you, you, you've still got some horn action going there. I don't know why Honda chose the horn as something to really display aesthetically on the bikes for so long, but they did. It's just a weird thing. So yeah, if you have a Nighthawk, hats off to you. It's uh, it's kind of a cool little bike, and it has its little spot in Honda's history. And again, a low maintenance bike. I I never had an issue with mine. I just never did. It was great. It was always wonderful. Cool. Let's see. So should we move on to worst bike? Let's go. Okay. All right. This one kind of hurts me because objectively. It's kind of a good bike, but it's also really, really horrible at the same time. So here we go. And the worst bike in the world this week is the original 1973 to 1988 Triumph T140 Bonneville. So immediately, like, You know, 300 people just spit their coffee all over the laptop and are instantly triggered. Slow your roll. I'm not talking about the Bonneville you think I'm talking about. You're thinking about 1960s 650 Bonnevilles. So 1969, Honda puts out the CB750. Or was it 68? 68, 69? somewhere in 67. Was it 67? It could have been. Anyway, this immediately caused huge problems for Triumph. And the truth is is that Triumph had really been suffering problems since kind of the mid-60s, honestly. They had, were kind of almost nearly in collapse around seventy two, and in fact, they had to combine with Norton and Villiers. And this was very common throughout all the British motor uh, auto auto industry in general. Companies were just merging together, consolidating, trying to cut down costs, trying to just absorb each other instead of going bankrupt because the whole thing was a disaster. And this is a subject that. If we ever get paid to do this podcast full time, I'm going to write a book about the collapse of the British motorcycle industry. I know there's plenty of other great books already, but I kind of want to tell the story one bike at a time. So the way that the Bonneville fits into this, specifically the T140. Now, the T140 is worth significantly less than other Bonnevilles because this is not the classic Bonneville. The engine... Is objectively a pretty good engine. It is one of the most beautiful engines that's ever been made, and this engine goes back to the fifties with the original Triumph Speed Twin, which is a five hundred. But the engine was never really made to be bored out this big, but they just kind of did because the CB seven hundred and fifty and other bikes like that, they were just really cutting into sales, and at this point. The the market in Britain was already decimated so badly that all they really cared about was selling bikes in America. And they're like, well, Americans need big displacement. And they're like, what are we competing with? We're competing with CB750s and H2s and we're competing with uh, 750 Harleys and one liter Harley Sportsters. So we need to bump up to 750. Now, what they should have done was just leave the Bonneville alone, just like it was, and then develop a new bike. But they didn't. And they just kept on with this Bonneville. They're like, we've got this name that everyone knows and everyone sort of loves, and we're just going to go with that. And what they should have done in like 68, 69 was just start making a brand new bike. But they didn't.
1: So... I'm seeing a story in the spec sheet here. Yes. In that the horsepower has dropped to 49 from what was typically 53 to 59, you know, in that range. So it's bored out. The horsepower has dropped. The compression has dropped to just under 8 to 1. And it's not even that long of a stroke.
0: No, 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 no. That, that's inaccurate. accurate. No, no. This is a ridiculously long stroke. This Are is, you sure? Oh, yeah. 76 by 82 for, for a 750. Yeah. This is a long stroke. Because the stroke was always long. All they could really do was just keep boring it out. Right. That's the why original it's so close Bonneville, to square. Right. The original Bonneville... Like I said, yeah, these bikes only rev to six and a half or whatever. But
1: normally at that ratio you would expect something like nine and a half to ten to one It's like a high performance motor with that boring stroke. Well But this is this is less than this is less than like a BSAA seven. This is ridiculously low compression. It these, sounds almost These
0: numbers like, are a little different than what I've seen on other spec sheets, but right. yeah, the horsepower depending on who you talk to, what year the bike is or whatever.
1: It sound but it it feels like they boarded it out to try and get more torque and maybe a little bit more power, but they had to they went so far that they then realized, "Oh, well, with this much torque and this much horsepower, the engine can't the you know the crankshaft just can't take it, and we'd have to rebuild it and redesign it and they just said,'ll we'll just lower the compression and well, we'll the reason we'll be you're fine.
0: confused and you're seeing this story is because you have to understand what the Bonneville really was now, the Bonneville was never the fastest British motorcycle, right like some people think, and it was never the most prestigious. British motorcycle. It was right in the middle of the pack, but it's the one that everyone fell in love with before the CB750 because it's where quality met price and performance. Mm-hmm. It was just sort of for a little bit, just a little bit above the average price, a really great bike. For the time, like a 60s sort of bike, handled really well. The speed for a bike at that time was really good. It wasn't the best, though, and it wasn't the lightest, and it wasn't the fastest, but it was well above average around every single different part, the reliability and everything. I mean, this engine in you know the early 60s was just a work of art. When they went to the unit construction engine for the 650 version of this, I mean, it was just the greatest thing out there. It was so great that Honda basically ripped off this engine for the CB350. Mm-hmm. I mean, the inspection mirrors, the, the the cam system, I mean, everything was just completely stolen. And, of course, the legendary uh, Yamaha XS650, commonly referred to as the greatest bike uh, Triumph never made. So when the CB750 came out, it was faster or close to as fast or whatever, but soon became a faster, better bike. And other things were faster, better bikes But you have to understand that Triumph was trying to sell this bike on an emotional level. They bumped it up to 750 because they're like, well, we have to sell these to Americans and they need that 750 number, right? 650 is slowly becoming a smaller number to Americans and they're not going to accept it unless we make it a 750. And they kind of lost a little bit of the magic in boring it out. But whatever, it still worked, and it was still fine. It was still a perfectly good motorcycle. But it was losing out on all those little slight edges that other bikes were coming up with. And this is why I said in like 69 or even 70, the very latest, they they should have started making a new motorcycle. But Mm. this is where it starts getting tragic. Now, I told you they started selling these primarily to Americans. Well, as everything else started getting more features and and manufacturers started coming out with more and more bikes, Triumph still didn't make a new bike. They just kept slapping things onto this, and they kept changing the model name every year. So initially the T140 Bonneville it was the T140V and the V stood for 5 because it finally got a 5-speed gearbox and i believe they also switched it over to american style controls so it wasn't you know so it wasn't right hand foot shift anymore it was left
1: so right around the time they were they were taking the uh the japanese they were following the japanese at this point
0: right So if you look up the T140 RV, all of a sudden things get really squirrely because now it doesn't look like a Bonneville anymore. And this is where it really becomes confusing and terrible because, like I said, Triumph was just basically taking the same bike and trying to sell it to Americans On this idea of, well, there may be other more technologically advanced bikes out there, but this bike has, you know, the emotion and the passion. This is a more of an enthusiast motorcycle in America. This is for people that like the old stuff, right? This is sort of sold, was trying to be sold on a sort of heritage type of thing, rather than, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at that third picture over. So so they decided to restyle the bike for sale in America. And it is just one of the most god-awful ugly tanks and side cover combinations you've ever seen in your life. The seats are weird, just the styling was terrible.
1: This and is this is affordable station wagon interior style.
0: Yeah, it's it's god awful. And they just thought, well, we'll give it this sort of more American-ish look. And, and the bike loses some of the character. And of course, they still sold the Tiger version with the single carburetor and then the Bonneville with the two carburetors and whatever. But it, already it's losing some of its appeal because you're riding something that doesn't look like a Bonneville anymore, which is a problem. And then they came out with, um, it wasn't, was it the J? Or it might have been the E. I think it was the E. The T140E had some different carbs on it or whatever. But then they put on these ridiculous high handlebars. And it all of a sudden starts almost looking Harley Harley Sportster-ish. At least like a 50s Harley Sportster. With this tank that's not a Bonneville tank. And these really high handlebars. And oh,
1: this is Ducati Indiana all over exactly, again.
0: Exactly, exactly. And so then they go, okay, well, Americans aren't buying enough of these just based on it starting to sort of gain a weight problem and look a little bit more Americanish. So I think it was somewhere around. Or, I mean, this is again that we're we're getting close to 1980 here. They come out with the T140. Yes, where they finally give it electric starts. And yeah, and there's more styling problems. I think by now it has dual front disc brakes as well. But again, we're still dealing with the same engine. It's just a bored out old Triumph 650. Now, on this picture you just bring up, this is super confusing because around this time they changed the Triumph tank in the UK as well.
1: Which, so they went back to spoked wheel. Oh, no, they were always spoked wheels. So I'm thinking of the... Uh, they always
0: sold them with a spoked wheel and a mag option from, I think, around 77 on. I'm if- just
1: getting flashbacks to the Ducati, Indiana.
0: Right. So Triumph was basically going through this Harley Sportster sort of frenetic issue where a Bonneville wasn't a Bonneville anymore. Like, a Sportster isn't really a Sportster. There's 10 million different flavors of them that you can get, right? Right. And so the Triumph is really struggling with this now because now they've switched to this very Kawasaki looking gas tank where they're selling them in the UK, but there's right. this very like, like late 80s CB, uh, CB 750 looking tank that they're selling in the States. And the bike doesn't have a consistent look, and so it's losing its identity, but they openly admit in their marketing that it's that it's yeah it's going to leak a little bit, but that's fine that's part of what the bike is they're like it's not the most reliable, it's not the fastest, but it's got the passion, but they're getting inconsistent on the look of it, and they're getting inconsistent on the feel of the bike, what the bike is, and what it means to people. And so how are they trying – so it's this marketing disaster, okay? And then there's the T-140AV, where they just put in these anti-vibration engine mounts, and apparently that – like you know made it worthy of its own another engine designation model but we're not even done yet there's the t140 le the limited edition which was made to commemorate the 1981 marriage of lady Di and prince charles oh yeah
1: exactly and then it's classic you know mo- you know classic motorcycle brand enthusiasts Really big into the Royals.
0: And then we move into one of the most horrid, and you might have to look, Google up a picture of this, the T140 TSX. Custom-styled T140, the Triumph T140 TSX featured Morris cast wheels, the rear being 16-inch, a stepped seat, and special finish. So they made a Bonneville with a King-Queen riser seat what the fuck this has this if you squinted your eyes you could you could be forgiven for thinking that this bike was designed in the same midnight coke range rage of the Z900TC it's got that kind of ridiculous oh, you mean the the
1: Z1RTC Z1RTC
0: right it's got that same kind of 70s like two- or three-tone race stripe sort of thing to it with this ridiculous stepped-up seat. It's very 1976, but this bike was made in 1983. What the hell, Triumph? And then the engine's all blacked out. So they're trying to hide the, the, the only beautiful part of the, of the bike, the engine, which is absolutely gorgeous. They're just, they've blacked the whole thing out. So that's just not even really on display anymore. The, the, the side covers are doing weird things. It's a disaster. And now we're going to finally get onto the final, final insult. Which is strange because this is kind of the greatest Bonneville ever made. But it's really just the final punctuating point that highlights the problem in thinking through this whole thing. And this is the 1982 T-140 WTSS. And so this is where they finally did something different before the end.
1: This is starting to feel like going through transitional photos of this is like going through um through mugshots over like a 10 year span of a meth addict.
0: Yeah, or maybe like a picture, you like going through photo albums and you see like pictures of your dad for like four years before he met your mom until like, you know, two years after you were born. And you're like, Oh my God, what happened? Okay. So you want T140W all as one and then TSS is its own. Okay. There you go. That second picture. So this isn't such a bad looking bike. Except our big problem here is they kind of got all the rest of the bike correct finally for once. We've got the seat still swoops up a little bit, but it's still more or less a flat British style seat. Yeah, we got mag wheels, but they look a little bit better. we have got the British style tank, but then the engine. Oh my God, we have to talk about the engine. So this was the fastest, most powerful. It is the rarest and probably the most valuable Triumph Bonneville of all time because they finally started to do something with performance and engineering to differentiate it. So for whatever reason, in 82 they went with this uh, they got with this other company, I can't remember the name, who were racing Bonnevilles and were making custom heads and they put out an 8-valve Triumph Bonneville 750. So They made a limited number of these, and they made them insanely expensive, and they did it way too late. They couldn't done this. Is there just
1: no top cover on this motor?
0: It's weird. It looks the valve covers on this almost look like just shrunk down valve covers off of a car. It's really unusual and the engine has lost all of its beauty, but that's kind of okay because there is significantly more power in this one. Some people have said it got up to 40, uh, sorry, 20% more horsepower out of this engine by adding the extra four valves, which I don't know, might be completely accurate. And that would be a hell of a thing that would have given the bike a nice little extra bit of pep. And But they didn't design a new bike around it. And I've read in that this racing technology existed way back in the sixties. Like this, this configuration was a setup that people were doing when they were racing triumphs. They could have done this as a stepping stone to a new engine and a new bike back in like 69 or 70, but they didn't. They waited till 1982. And you know when they closed their doors? 1983.
1: This has all the hallmarks of a company that just got too hungry to eat, where they were very complacent. Then they started to realize what was going on. It was too late. All they felt they could do was minor adjustments and minor tweaks, trying to solve way too big of a problem in way too small steps. And then they just slowly starved out rather than taking the big hit up front to reimagine what they needed to change to to get with the times.
0: Right, and this this whole problem of them losing market share and getting to this point, I you could forgive it if it wasn't for the fact that this took place over almost two decades and the writing was on the wall for a full 11 years of this right the 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 T140 was the first bike they put out after they did the whole corporate restructure and they consolidated with Norton and Villiers like triumph was basically bankrupt in 1969 or 1970 from 69 to 72 it was bad times for triumph already already right and so 73 comes around they've done the reorganization and it should have been like right let's make a new bike but they thought it's just not in the budget we've just got to keep doing more of what's been losing us money right why not just scrap all the different models they were making because they were making tons of different weird bikes at this time They could have dropped a lot of different models that they still weren't selling anyway. And I know it's easy to look back hindsight's 2020, but when you add up the whole story, because I haven't, I've only, I'm only talking about one model of bike. And really only half the story, because we haven't talked about any of the 650 and its problems that it had with sales through its life. Yeah. It's it's a thing. And if I was going to go on and talk about the Tiger and talk about the Thunderbird and talk about the Rocket 3 and all the other different bikes, we could give a more complete story. But this is just with one model of bike. and But you can extrapolate this out to what Triumph's problem was. And when you look back at it, you're like, how could nobody tell what was going on? And so this bike, while it was – kind of still a good bike. You have to remember, technology was moving at a different rate than it does today and what people expected in a bike was different. It wasn't horrible. It was a pleasant bike to ride and all of them were, but the problem is the bike sort of lost what it was. And so they couldn't even sell it on the Legacy and it confused and muddied up the name and the history of Triumph. You know, when when um they bought the Triumph name and brought it back in Hinckley in, like, 94, 93, whatever. You know, Triumph was a name that people were just like, what? Like, who, who cares about that, you know? I, the only person I knew that was excited that Triumph was coming back was Dad. He was right. like, oh, Triumphs, those used to be brilliant. We were at the 94 Tokyo Motor Show, and they had, like, the new Triumphs there, I remember. And Dad was like, look at this, and nobody else gave a shit. It was just crickets around there, you know? And, but, it, it, cause Triumph had just drug its own name through the mud with stuff like this for a full decade before closing the doors. So it's weird that Triumph has this triumphant name now, but that's just a testament to how well Hinkley Triumph has gone, and what an amazing job that they have done. And they are reading the market so much better than the Triumph of Old ever did. Ever. So, there we go. They're
1: doing this well after their factory burnt down.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I... I love Hinkley Triumph so much more than the Triumph of Volt because they are two completely different companies. They don't share a scrap of tooling. They don't share a single blueprint. They don't share a single employee. It's just the rights of a name that was bought along with the, the, the rights of all the old, you know, intellectual property. So the only thing they share is model names and the mark. And that's it. Um, but the Hinckley Triumph is such a great, a much better company and really is more in tune with what motorcyclists worldwide are interested in than Triumph of old ever was. Ever. And this is direct proof. And if you don't believe me, just start reading through anywhere from about, yeah, 68 onwards with Triumph and look at any model and its history and its development and you can't tell me you don't see this story and this short-sightedness evolving. It wasn't because the bikes were crap. Because it was kind of a a cool bike, they just couldn't get their message together, and they couldn't figure out what the bike was. And they could have sold a decent number of 650 Bonnevilles on this whole heritage idea if they also had a new bike that was totally up to date and offered something competitive with, you know, let's say CB 750s or whatever Japanese bikes through the, you know, because again, remember, this is a story that goes through to the 80s, right? This bike goes right up to in Triumph production, the GPC GPZ 900, the first Ninja. You think of the Triumph as this old ancient British bike. There was a time where Triumph was making these at the exact same time Kawasaki was making the Top Gun bike. And then what's really weird is someone bought all the spares that were left over and kept putting these together, kind of like people make DeLoreans now, until 1988, you could buy a Bonneville new So, like, I mean, that that's to the point, again, with the DeLorean, you could have seen Back to the Future in the theaters and bought a new Bonneville on the same day. So it's not as vintage a bike as you might think. And it's not as... Classic cool in some ways, as you might think, because it had a tragic Well, finish. it can
1: be. Well, the, but, whole, but, the whole yeah. idea
0: is that when Bonnevilles became revered and the value shot up, a lot of people were shocked. It was not always just a given that the Bonneville was a super classic bike. Yeah. So there you go. Maybe you learned something today. But all right. Uh, 1973 to 1988, technically, Triumph Bonneville T140, whatever designation, worst bike in the world this week but still better than a car all right let's take a break real quick okay and we're back so now we're going to talk about something that everybody's talking about which is the sad but inevitable death of the klr 650 let's have a little quick moment of silence Okay, it's just an 80s bike. It didn't need to be that long of a motorcycle, but we needed it anyway, because the KLR is a pretty unique story, and although I'm not going to go into as much detail as we've done for the previous of this, but this is going to be our second induction into the Nokomoto Hall of Fame for Motorcycles. So, in our Hall of Fame currently for motorcyclists, we've got Evil Knievel and Joey Dunlop. But for motorcycles, we've thus far only done the Amazonas 1600. <laughs> and now we're going to have the KLR 650. And hopefully, when we get our act together, we're going to have a section of the website for this, this Hall of Fame to make it a little bit more legit. But th- so there's some interesting things about the KLR 650, if you didn't realize. So this bike has been made since nineteen eighty seven, largely unchanged. There was a redesign in two thousand eight, like in every other story you've heard about this week or seen on YouTube or read about in articles, you know. The specs aren't all that crazy. What was it like forty seven horsepower, supposedly, something around around there? there, And like 37 foot pounds of torque something Mm -hmm. like that not crazy but it was enough to get the job done and it was the only bike that really hit the super sweet spot of capable on the road and just capable off the road to fit the needs of the widest group of people
1: at the right price
0: at the right price and legendary reliability um there's been some hot talk lately about whether you did or didn't need to do the doohickey mod or whatever. It doesn't matter. The point is, is that as you rightly pointed out when you picked this as a best bike in the world this week, you described it as the sturdiest hammer. But off, off, uh, off mic here, you just came up with another amazing analogy that I really like. <laughs> R- roll with that one for a second. So. You-
1: so- when you really think about what this bike is and you compare all the normal specs to any other bike of a similar year, it doesn't seem all that impressive, but again, it's that price point and the reliability and what it enables somebody with modest income to do. And it deserves a great deal of respect in the same way that the Greenland shark deserves respect in that It may not seem all that impressive, but when you think about how long it's been around and how unchanged it has been for so many eons, you realize the success and the genius of the design.
0: Yeah, I think when you brought up this comparison, I said, like, yeah, people are kind of aware of, like, sharks in general are, like, as old as dinosaurs, but the Greenland shark is, like three times as old as dinosaurs and then you said i think the greenland shark might be older than trees yeah and it turns out that kind of checks out (laughs) it's ridiculous because the regular production run of a motorcycle on average might be somewhere between six to ten years and a lot of bikes just coming in at, like, three or four years, some at, like, you know, 10, 12, 15 is a long time, right? Mm-hmm. And this has been 31 years. And the update it got in 2008 was largely just styling, yeah. you know? Right. They they did a the little thing that made it so no one would have to do the doohickey mod in 2008, I think. But there you go. Just essentially the same bike unbelievable now we could go in and pick out a whole bunch of different stories of round the world trips that people have done on this and you know it's military usage and all these things and we could go on for hours but this is one of those things where the story is kind of too big to tell because the bike itself is unremarkable it's just created Millions of all these tiny little stories around it. If you don't have a KLR 650 story, another motorcyclist you know has a KLR 650 story right yeah you know you everyone's had a roommate that had one and it was just you know absolutely rock solid and the, you know there was a day someone had to get to work and both your cars broke down but damn it in the snowiest day in december someone got to work on it or whatever or someone's, you know, dad rode one across the country, or someone took one to the the craziest thing. Someone was on a hunting trip and it hauled like a six hundred pound deer through the woods, or you know, what, <laughs> yeah. whatever it is. Someone's got a KLR 650 story, and that's what's amazing about this bike, I think. Yeah. Because not every not everyone has a ninja story. Well, a lot of people have ninja stories, but you know, not everyone's got a Goldwing story. You know, everyone has a Harley story, but this is one of those special bikes, and I guess they're really just putting it to pasture because emissions and all that sort of stuff. Because this bike's still carbureted.
1: Is it? Was the 2018 still carbureted? Oh yeah. I did not know that. Yeah,
0: it's kind of a Suzuki move on, <laughs> on their part. But yeah, still carbureted, still just just how they always made it.
1: Oh shit, it is carbureted. Yeah, what? see
0: I told you. It yeah, it's the same bike. Now, it did replace the KLR 600 which and there was a 550 or whatever. It kind of mm-hmm. went through a little arms race development up to what it is. But in a very short amount of time, it kind of just evolved into its final form really quickly. I guess. It's sort of like if you're playing Pokemon and, and you get your, uh, your squirtle like upgraded like really quickly. You put a lot of work into that Pokemon. and like three quarters through the game, you're still using this Pokemon that you got in like before you bought, you, you, you won your first gym battle right but then all of a sudden just really quickly it just becomes completely unviable you know that's another weird comparison we can make here it's it's the bulbasaur of motorcycles as well um yeah it it's just i don't know it's it's gone on for so long and it's just worthy of everyone's respect and it's Kind of like something I've been saying about the Hayabusa, where it's kind of the best thing that could ever happen to this motorcycle. It's being killed at kind of exactly the right time for the right reasons, that this bike is now just going to go from cult status to pure myth. I think we're going to start hearing stories about this bike doing things that it never even actually did. (laughs) Right. I think that, that, and that's why it's a Hall of Famer for me. It is going past, it is going past um, Legend and going headfirst into straight-up Myth. All right, so another bike that we need to talk about now, because we haven't talked about a new bike for quite some time, or a new, new bike. There's the new Triumph Scrambler. 1200 everyone's talking about this as well and i'm still a little on the fence about how i feel about it but there are some things there there is some love that i just have to give up immediately it looks like it does what it says it's going to do and it's a little confusing for me because i've only just recently come to an emotional space where i accept that the definition of scrambler has changed and then here comes the scrambler 1200, just fucking my whole world up again. I got to this point where I could accept that scramblers weren't really scramblers. It was just a way to give bikes an aesthetic look to get hipsters to buy them or whatever. And I, I, I made my peace with that and I was okay with it. But now we have a scrambler that looks like it's actually good for scrambling. And it's breaking the rules as well. It's got it looks like it might be a little too heavy or might have too big of an engine, but like well,
1: That's what we said about the GS though.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and I've seen videos of people wheeling them in the dirt. I've seen videos of people getting over logs with it. And they're gonna race it in the Baja. Like it looks like it might be really, really good. And you no matter what you think about this bike, you have to admit it nails the Scrambler look harder than any other bike in history. When people think about Scramblers, the bike that kind of pops up in their mind is the old CL350, right? That kind Mm -hmm. of really defines the look. I mean, that is a bike that has uh, an exhaust pipe. That is more valuable than the rest of the bike itself, because it's such an iconic look that the Honda CL 350 exhaust is, you know, one of the all time legendary, beautiful exhaust. But this bike looks more like a scrambler than an old scrambler. And that's impressive. But also, you know, unlike the old Triumph scrambler, this one has a different frame it's got a, a purpose-built swing arm for this the engine's been completely redone from the regular bonneville engine so it's, wait is
1: that a is that a is it an, is it an inline three
0: no it's a twin is it yeah it's, wait, a, it's the 1200 twin but it's been it's been redone for mid-range torque and oh all that's that. the
1: Cradle frame, okay.
0: Right. But it's not the Bonneville frame. It's a different cradle frame that's supposedly better for this, and it's got weight down in a different way. And again, the swing arm's different. The suspension's beefed up. And this bike has all the things. This has turn by turn directions that link with your phone. So there's a spot for your phone under the seat and you put in where you're going to go and the dash tells you your directions and everything. It's got all kinds of rider modes. It, I mean, it has all the things you met, you name it. It has it. And even with those high scrambler pipes, there's you know luggage options you can buy for this too which is a a feat i still haven't figured out how they've how they've done but it works supposedly there's different versions of it so there's two different price points well this
1: is already 10 times more legitimate than any bike that is marketed as a scrambler and that it actually comes with a stock uh skid plate yes um yeah, it has, like has a lot of clearance as well. It does
0: that BMW thing too where it it's um it's definitely not living in the past. The rims are all against the outside, so it runs tubeless tires, but it can still have spoked wheels, so you don't, you know, just bash up your your uh your rims right, yeah. when you're off road. So you can have the advantages of tubeless tires and the advantages of spokes, just like BMW does with the GSs. It kind of does everything. Now, it's going to be expensive. They haven't released the price, but like, you know, part of me wanted to hate because scramblers haven't really been scramblers for a long time. But then here comes this one. And just because it looks like it can actually do all the things and it has the look, I kind of don't care if it's going to be too expensive because I I don't really want this kind of bike myself. But it looks like it's the best option, and if someone wants to spend the money and get the best one that actually does the thing, that so, actually does what it's supposed to do, well, uh,
1: so so based on what Triumph charges for other bikes, oh, especially by the way, on the higher end, I'm gonna guess that this bike will come in for no less than like eighteen thousand dollars.
0: I was thinking somewhere between 14 and 16, but yeah, who knows? Who knows? I Who knows? And again, I want to say I'm aware that I just said like steeled like Jensen's Beeler's line, like does the thing and said it like six times in a row, but I'm just kind of at a loss of any other way to describe it. It is functional or it appears functional. It promises a lot, but there seems to be some numbers to back this up. I mean, 81 foot pounds of torque hell yeah you can get the front wheel of this over things you know it, it yeah it, it looks really good you know it it's kind of like that scene in um high fidelity where he walks into the store and jack black's like listening to this crazy techno music and john cusack goes what is this and Jack Black's like, oh, it's the it's the skater punks that are always hanging outside and like he puts his hand in his face and he goes, oh, it's good. It's really good. (laughs) He has to admit that it's really good, even though he wants to hate it so bad. I'm kind of there with this because like I said, I already came to this place of acceptance and now triumph has turned my whole world upside down on what I think about the scrambler market. I'm emotionally confused again, which I guess if this bike evokes those kinds of feelings in me, that has to be a good sign.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now that I've thought about it a bit more, you know, with with Ducati coming out with, with the Desert Sled and with this bike and kind of with the direction that Indian is going with the FTR 1200, it kind of feels like this is going to be the new adventure styling. That everyone's kind of migrating to it. this is this is kind of the next thing you know it used to be touring bikes then touring bikes moved on to adventure bikes and then venturing bikes are now kind of moving on to these scramblers which isn't a terrible thing
0: yeah maybe this is kind of like jeeps coming back in a big way right you know everyone's kind of going well yeah maybe this suv motorcycle doesn't make a lot more sense but this is more like the jeep of motorcycles is it the greatest off-road vehicle of all time no but is it capable fuck yes right is it does it cost too much for what it is probably but are people going to be happy to pay it probably yeah you know i yeah I, i don't know nokamoto is still a little bit undecided on this everybody but i guess i think we can say things look good
1: well i think market wise and popularity wise i think it'll be a big hit
0: yeah i there is still even though i said i came to that place of acceptance there is an emotional part of me that would rather scramblers be scramblers
1: but scramblers are dead it's not coming back but maybe they are. I don't know. Do you I'm want so pagers confused? and fax machines to come back too? <laughs> <Like>. <laughs> okay.
0: I I, I think I, I don't think there's really much else to say. We're gonna have to ride one at some point or know somebody or whatever. Or, you know, just get some some uh some some YouTubers doing some real world stuff with them. But as of right now, it looks pretty good. So let's put a little break in here and then come back with another subject and we're back again so even though we did enjoy a day of sunshine and it was a good solid 50 degrees up in northern colorado for most of the day the sad reality is that the number of riding days are becoming fewer and far between now we ride year through. And this isn't a bragging thing, but it's just a weird thing about northern Colorado is you kind of can ride year round if you're prepared to deal with a few things. You can't rely on riding every day, but and you know there will be like a couple week stretches where you can't get on your bike, but There's usually at least a couple days most weeks where it's totally viable to ride. So we don't really fully winterize our bikes or anything like that. We just kind of keep expecting that, okay, we're going to be able to ride at some point and we'll deal with it. Now, having said that, we realize that for a lot of you, riding has just stopped. In the vast majority of places in the United States, it's no longer possible. Now for some of our listeners, this isn't super relevant. Like all of our new New Zealand listeners, hey, it's really just coming into the best time of year to ride. And all of our Australian listeners too. Um our two South African listeners, which I really hope it's just DeAntword that is listening to us. de <laughs> <laughs> DeAntword, if you are listening to us, like please send us an email. Um But yeah, so for a lot of people, there's sort of an identity crisis. All summer, you've been going hard. You've been getting your miles in. You're really jazzed about writing. You found all these great podcasts like us to listen to, and life's been pretty good. But now you are faced with the deep, dark wall that is winter. But hope is not lost. We have come up with some nice ways for you to continue your motorcycle identity through the cold months so the number one thing not the number one thing but the first thing we're going to talk about is you know how to continue your your motorcycle identity even though you can't ride you know if you're in detroit i get it you can't ride i don't think you're a pussy for not riding right now okay But that doesn't mean you have to stop enjoying motorcycles. One of the best things you can do right now, if you're not a racing fan yet, or if you have fallen behind on motorcycle racing, right now is pretty much the best time to get into it. So, let's start with MotoGP, something near and dear to our hearts so, what is it, like 170 bucks to watch MotoGP through the regular season?
1: Uh, I don't think it's that much, but it's, it's in that $140, 150 range for the yearly pass.
0: Okay, so if you go to MotoGP.com right now, and there's still a couple races left, it's probably like 25 bucks or something, and you get all of the races through... Uh, you all of time basically i mean it's going back to like 1990 every race and it's the the full broadcast it's on demand whenever you want to watch it practices qualifying all that sort of stuff all the legendary series there's places to go to find the most you know epic awesome races to watch from the past and you can really brush up on this but if you haven't been following especially in a few more weeks when the season's completely done it goes down to like 17 bucks.
1: So another thing to keep in mind is if you for World Superbike, for MotoGP, for all the Dorna owned stuff, there is been pretty consistently a big discount on Black Friday. Oh yeah. So if you can wait out till Black Friday, that's the time to purchase. I don't think that gets you the full next season. But I think it gives you like a really, really good off-season price where you can just go through entire seasons of the back catalog. Yeah, that's
0: when it's like seventeen bucks. You can yeah. just watch everything because there's no current racing happening. So they're like, well, rather than make no money for almost nothing, you can just watch because if you like my current subscription that I paid whatever for, hundred and fifty bucks or whatever that's good and valid all through the winter until the beginning of next season you know in february or whatever if i want to fire it up and watch whatever race it's still good
1: well actually no it's the other way around it ends the it ends shortly after the last race of the season it's the other way around no I'm pretty sure it is.
0: I thought it was you could buy it after all the racing is done, watch it for super cheap through the winter and then when you if you, you know, need to watch the next season, then they're going to hit you with the hard price again. The point I'll is see. is that either way you cut it, you can watch the whole season super cheap right now and get caught up on it. So, you can't you can't go out and ride your bike, but you can watch awesome racing. Then Uh, The same thing applies for World Superbike. It's a subscription. You pay. You watch the races online, whatever. Again, super cheap. Get in it now. Watch those races. Get all caught up. Super badass.
1: If you don't want to spend any money, you can watch all of uh, Moto America for free on YouTube
0: exactly get caught up on that shit because that is awesome and wayne rainey will love you forever and same goes i believe for british superbike is free to watch as well
1: uh i don't know if british superbike is free i know it's on eurosport and i believe you can get a subscription to that for 40 pounds a year so like 55 bucks or is it even 55 bucks i think that might be like 48 bucks or something like that
0: right but again it's probably discounted now at the end of the season also so become a racing fan because oh my gosh you will wonder why you never were before i don't care if you're a big you know cruiser guy and racing isn't really something you thought about the amount of control these guys have what they do it's a different level I mean, it really is up there with the drama and the personalities and the stories like any other sport is like American football is like soccer is like anything you've seen. Everything is there. It's absolutely wonderful. I mean, if it all stopped, there would be a hole in my life. I'm not a sports guy. I'm really not. I don't get it. And racing's different because it's not a tribal sport. You know? Yeah. It's, it doesn't work that way. So Americans and, well, most people in general are really into like what I call tribal sports. You've got a team that's from your area, even though it's not a team of your area. It's just this franchise that some super rich guy owns, but gets to connect it to a city or a region and therefore builds in fans. And, you know, car guys and motorcycle guys, I think traditionally aren't really big sports people. They're not big sports fans. And I think it's because motorcycling has a lot more individuality to it. But when you find a racer that you're really into because of their personality and their riding style and the team and the – and you might be brand loyal or something, that's amazing – And then, you know, let's say you're not into this European and – or it's not even European. Like, uh, a lot of this racing happens all over the world. But let's say you're a little more ethnocentric. Well, there's all the flat track racing that you can catch up on now for free also. Where do people find that, Swiggy? Uh,
1: Fanschoice.tv.
0: Fanschoice.tv. Check that out because that's super cool stuff as well. And if you – You know, don't listen to creative writing. Well, you should because Wiggins is totally into that world and gives great updates and insights into how that world works and what they're doing. And it's super cool because it's really grassroots and no one's really getting paid. It's racing for the pure sport and joy of it. There are people that are just personally going well into the red just to make their little personal racing dreams happen for no reward. Just your entertainment. So you're kind of a dick for not watching it. So, yeah, everything from flat tracking, weird Harleys and Indians up to crazy prototype sport bikes. And, you know, again, if you're not into the whole worldwide racing thing, there's Moto America, which is that sweet spot of just Americans riding super sport and super bikes like badasses. And that's really important, too, because we need to build more american talent to get more people interested in moto gp and world superbike and all of that so get into that guys You, you you what are you doing otherwise all that time that you can't be riding just watch the races and live vicariously that way so that's super cheap and easy next thing projects it's project season prices on craigslist have plummeted The email we just got from Vladimir, he has been picking up super cheap, non-running bikes, left and right, like crazy. He's got his shop put together. He's fixing bikes. He's learning. He's doing all sorts of crazy stuff. You can do this a lot cheaper than you think. It's not like it's a deadline. Pick up a super crappy bike that's not running. You've got all freaking winter. See what happens.
1: Another another angle to this is if you're happy with your bike and you don't want a project, this is the best time of year to buy gear. There are a whole bunch of people working at dealerships, working at gear shops. Christmas is coming up. They got presents to buy for their kids. They got to make sales. It's the end of the year. There's going to be a whole new line of gear coming out at the beginning of next year. They've got... Excess stock that they need to move. So if your helmet's a couple of years old and maybe it's a bit grimy, maybe it's starting to get, you know, a little worn down, it's scuffed up, and you think, you know, it's about time I replaced it, this is a great time to get, you know, 40% off of what you would have paid in April last year or April of this year.
0: Yeah, you can still go down to the bike shop and hang out and buy gear, right? Totally legit, so that's something you can do and then lastly, if you're in a somewhat sort of temperate zone or whatever or uh, you, you, you kind of think like eh, like it's just a little bit too cold for me to ride there's another option: suck it up and ride, you pussy so we we've got a couple of uh, tips here for how you can sort of uh, lower that little bit everyone's got that temperature that's that basement floor line of like okay I will not cross this for me it's 40 degrees if it's above 40 I'm riding that's that's what it is if the roads are clear and it's over 40 I'm riding and I've sort of built a little gear setup that works really well for me in order to do that now am I going to ride all day when it's 40 degrees no but i'll do my commute no problem and that's only 20 miles or something but it's it's nice just to get out there on the bike you know you haven't been on it for a week or two and you're like yeah i can do 20 miles just to work and then 20 miles back at the end of the day that's not a big deal so my biggest thing in developing this is just getting the wind off of me that was the biggest thing. It wasn't getting super crazy thermal gear or heated gear or heated grips or anything. It was the realization that it was just, I just had to stop that air. And so my setup is really super simple and ridiculously cheap, Like there's a good chance for under $20. You can achieve what I have achieved. So I, start with just, you know, the t-shirt or, you know, whatever, you know, my work, my work clothes or whatever. On top of that, a hoodie or a sweatshirt or whatever. Then over that, I put on a poncho, like a super cheap Walmart poncho. And then over that, my regular motorcycle jacket, which, and this is key, is not leather. So, I've got all my protection. You know, it's not like I'm riding in a ski jacket, which I used to do in the past. I put this like ski jacket over my regular jacket, but I kind of noticed I felt uncomfortable, and maybe I wasn't being super safe because I just noticed I had like just a couple little degrees less motion because I had so many layers on when I was riding. Mm -hmm. But the idea of putting this poncho in is I've created another air insulating barrier and I've blocked all wind because i've got a textile jacket that lets some air through and if i didn't have that poncho it would just be death i would just get cold to the bone so quickly
1: right so yeah you've accomplished what i was fortunate enough to get the jacket a, a couple years later than yours which had the uh the rain liner which accomplishes the same thing for me right so i mean we don't but neither you nor I have actual, like, proper winter gear. Oh, we have straight up summer gear, right? Yeah. So, I mean, if you want to ride in the winter, but you you realistically only have a few days, do you really want to drop, you know, six to seven hundred dollars on like winter pants and a winter jacket and a separate winter jacket and winter gloves and all this additional gear? Probably not. Not only that, but it's not really kind of modular gear, yeah, you want something that you can take with you all the time and and swap swap out, especially if you're the kind of person who has to you know leave before sunrise in the winter to get to work, yeah, like I do, yeah, and return after it's dark yeah yeah you you want that kind of modular setup, so everyone everyone lives in a different place with different weather with a different level of humidity with different temperatures with different amounts of wind so everyone's got to kind of build their own gear but if you break it down into the basic principles it's not too hard to do so the things you really have to think about is where are you losing heat where are you gaining heat and how does that change based on how you ride yeah so the the biggest factor is when you, if you can just stand outside, which you normally can do with if, if its temperature that you could remotely ride in. Then you have to consider that what is really just sapping all the heat away from you. And what it is, is it's wind chill. Yeah. You know, if when you're standing still, you know, you've got the, different, the difference in temperature between the air and you. And that's pulling the heat out of you that's how you lose your heat but when you're standing still you know you heat the air around you and then that be- that becomes a buffer between the air that's colder beyond that and you know it's, it creates this gradient and it doesn't stay it doesn't feel all that cold that's why there that's why the weather channel always talks about wind chill mm-hmm. because wind chill is basically how it's a subjective measure of how much colder it feels based on the fact that all the air that you would normally heat around you that would create that buffer getting swept away by the wind. And when you're on a motorcycle, there's a lot of wind chill. If everything is standing still and you're doing 60 miles an hour, that's 60 miles an hour of wind producing wind chill. Yeah. So more often than not, the best thing you can do to keep yourself warm and ride comfortably is eliminate wind chill. And the best way to do that is to well, have
0: a Harley Batwing fairing. But short of that,
1: yeah, <laughs> is to have some windproof layer combined with some sort of fabric that will create a gap of air between that impermeable fabric and your skin. So that you have an, you have a layer of air trapped under a windproof layer.
0: Right. So that's what I've achieved with the hoodie and the poncho. Yeah. And then I have another jacket on top of that. Now, the core of my jacket does a pretty good job of stopping some wind as well. But because it's kind of more of a summery textile jacket, the sleeves are kind of essentially open. So that's where I was really really suffering my arms would get super cold even though maybe my core was still fine yeah. so i had to figure out how to get this windproof barrier in between there so the jacket then just simply becomes safety with all of its armor and yeah it wouldn't be much of a difference for me to really just ride in the poncho and the right. sweater
1: now it's important i mean this this kind of sounds obvious but if you just throw on whatever gear you have and go out and think oh i'll be fine the re The biggest trap in terms of winter gear is leather, right? because what leather is is leather is actually a very highly is highly conductive to heat and cold. It will transfer that temperature gradient very quickly, but it's a trap because leather's really heavy it holds it can store a a lot of heat. So, if you're inside in your heated house or apartment, you put a bunch of leather gear on, you walk outside, you think, oh, I don't feel cold at all. This feels great. You get on your bike, you ride off in your leather jacket and your your leather gloves, and you think, I still feel great. Fifteen minutes later, I want to die.
0: Yeah, and the other thing, too is leather i mean it's organic material it expands and constricts a lot so all of a sudden you can find yourself having really poorly fitting gear because of a radical temperature change as well
1: yeah so leather it kind of it. It definitely works very well if you're just standing still in the cold and you've got like wool leather layers yeah, it's underneath. It's probably it, still good
0: for like a ten fifteen mile or minute trip. Also, but oh, it's, it's
1: perfect for ten minutes. Yeah. After but, that, you've got to warm it up again. Yeah,
0: if you live really close to work, it's just 10, 15 minutes to get there. Roll with your leather jacket. It's probably going to be awesome. But if it's more closer to twenty five thirty forty minutes. I don't know. You might consider doing something like, you know, maybe take, get out your ski jacket or your winter jacket and then get one of those, like, armored shirts or something to put underneath it. And then maybe think about another, like, poncho sort of air barrier sort well, of you thing you as well on top another, of that. That could achieve the same thing, too.
1: You don't need another air barrier, but what you can't have is, like, leather against your skin, You've got right. to have like some sort of like wool liner or some, some liner in between the leather and your skin that will trap air, and then you'll be okay.
0: Yeah, before my current setup, I would have a jacket or whatever kind of thing I had, and I'd put a ski shirt on underneath, which is really good for that. So, you know, think about a ski shirt. That could work as well. But, you know, go down to Under Armour and see what they got. Go to Walmart and get some cheap ponchos and just sort of experiment with things. You know, just take some 10, 15, 20-minute trips around your neighborhood, and you might be surprised with what you've got lying around that
1: can enable you to ride more often. So another trap, heated grips. Heated grips will work incredibly well if you're doing, I would say, 50 miles an hour and under because the heated grips will, will add enough heat that they will cancel out what the wind is doing in most, you know, anything down to like 30 degrees. But if you're going 75 miles an hour and you're wearing full winter gloves and you've got your heated grips on their maximum setting, there is no way that your heated grips are going to put more heat into your hands than the wind chill is taking away without burning your hands on the inside and leaving your outside the outsides of your hands frozen stiff there's just no way that it actually works at highway speeds the wind chill factor becomes just way too great and you have to have a way to physically block the wind from hitting your hands
0: yeah, now I'm really lucky in that for whatever reason, I guess from working in factories and restaurants and woodworking and whatever for so long, my hands just apparently just don't register things like other people's do, and I've just never had a, an issue with my hands. I've never had to wear other gloves inside of my regular bike gloves. I mean, my gloves have vents in the knuckles and it I I'm still just I've never run into a situation no matter how cold where I've thought my hands are so miserable right now, I can't go on. Now, I realize, though, that this is an issue for other people. And my warning about the heated grips, in the times that I have ridden with them, I've thought, ooh, well, this is kind of nice, just like a lot of people have. But uh, an epiphany popped into my head. Riding with heated grips can kind of be like marrying yourself to lube or a Hitachi wand vibrator. It seems like this amazing upgrade, but the moment that you run out of batteries or lube or something, all of a sudden you can't get off without this extra aid anymore, right? (laughs) If you you might marry yourself to this cruel mistress that will just desert you one day, if you can at all figure out a way of just doubling up some gloves or something else instead of using heated grips, you might be better in the long run. Because heated grips are great, like you said, until they're not.
1: I would say that if you do a lot of highway riding, if you do a lot of 60 and over highway riding, and that's your regular commute, or that's what you have to do around the area that you live, Bark Busters or some muffs that go over the handlebars will be far superior to heated
0: grips. Oh, the muffs are the greatest thing ever. I used um, Mike's once, and I was like, wow, this is a game changer. But a lot of people can't deal with the look of the muffs over the handlebars, which my thinking is, who gives a fuck you're out there being a fucking badass when no one else is ballsy enough to ride who cares that you've got the muffs right right it's like that it's like that thing about the uh the mary Kay pink cadillac someone's like yeah but it's a pink cadillac and you can ask okay well what color is yours right it's like oh you got to ride with the muffs oh really like how many miles did you ride today if you if you're insecure about riding with the muffs, like I don't know, maybe it's time to re-examine why you ride or why you're riding in the
1: cold. Right. Yes, the heated grips do help, and it is wonderful in a pinch, but barkbusters and muffs for highway riding, far superior because I mean, yes, heated grips will add heat and warm your hands up a little bit. But you know what else warms your hands? your body you're right. a warm-blooded mammal like there's plenty of heat you're being not generated. a greenland shark <laughs> yes your body is producing its own heat and the heated grips aren't producing all that much more heat No, like it's not that much more additional it's the wind chill factor is by far the biggest thing
0: okay i think we've covered this pretty good i mean you know every note we've
1: th- missed something huge oh have we absolute biggest quality of life improvement for winter riding is a buff yes
0: i have been talking about the miracle that is the buff forever i think i put that in like one of our early episodes like the super cheap gear that's going to improve your quality of life so i do yeah i want to talk about the buff because i'll always talk about buffs So, first of all, like I said before when we talked about buffs, why did it take so long to improve bandana technology, (laughs) right? (laughs) Why? But now it's here. So, I have a collection of buffs, and I, I kind of don't like riding without one regardless of the temperature. When it's hot, it'll wick sweat away from you. Um, I love it because it goes over my ears and puts a little barrier between my ears and my Senna speakers, improving the sound quality, taking out some of that tinniness, but also just not blowing my eardrums out with stupid volume. It reduces wind noise inside your helmet, therefore making you not have to raise the volume in your helmet if you're riding with a comm system or something in the first place. It, like I said, will take sweat away when it's hot. It will keep cold air out and keep heat in when it's cold. It makes your helmet just slide on like, like the the best fitting helmet you've ever had just magically. If you've got an issue where you've got kind of an older helmet and let's say your speakers don't like to stick to the inside of it as well as they used to, you'll find it's easier to get your helmet on and off without fucking up your speaker position in your helmet. It kind of just does everything. It is more effective than the chin guard for buffeting wind by like a by a lot and um i don't know and if you're really into your hair as well there's a way to put it over to sort of like less mess up and give you a little bit less helmet hair as well too there's no downside to a buff if you don't know what we're talking about it's a little you know you see those guys riding And they've got the bandana thing around their head that looks like they've got, like, a skull from, like, the nose down, right? That's a buff, all right? You can wear it, like, 20 different ways. I like to just have it, like, pretty much almost to my forehead and then come down over my chin. But you can wear it any way you want because it's a little stretchy thing. It kind of form fits, and you can tuck it into your shirt. Oh, it's magic, people. Get with the program the buff with a helmet without it's perfect always
1: i'm a big fan of the sub-zero style oh yeah (laughs) where you pull it up over your nose and tuck it down ninja style
0: yeah well it took you a while to get on the buff train in fact it wasn't until las vegas like yamaha was giving them out for free and i you you didn't want one i took it from the basket and put it in your hands i was like nope you're going to try this out, and you will be a convert. You had the same level of skepticism as when I bought you that um the cramp buster. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're like, there's no way this is going to do anything for me. And like 50 miles later, you're like, this is the greatest thing ever. Why did I ever ride without this? <laughs> so there we go. All right, now I think we can put a pin on this and then we can move to another topic. Okay, and we're back with our last segment for this episode. So we're going to do another "How to Sound Like You Know What You're Talking About," and these are kind of normally long-winded, but this one's going to be a little bit shorter. I want to say real quick, uh, thank you, Creative Writing, for keeping us honest with some of our Buell facts on the last one. And I do want to say also on these "How to Know How to Sound Like You Know What You're Talking About" segments, I want to invite everyone listening. To email us and send in corrections because we're not as full of shit as we sound like. We just missay things like crazy. We don't write out super detailed show notes and we don't have every website of everything we've pulled up information on when we're talking. We just sort of read about stuff and, or, whatever or just stuff we've read in the past and just go when we're doing the show. So as a service to us and everybody else listening, I kind of want to start doing a corrections and emissions segment in the beginning of shows for all the things that we miss say, because there's quite a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of times I'm trying to explain something or Swiggy's trying to explain something and we just say it the wrong way. And I think there's plenty of listeners that can help us out, and we can just you know tidy things up on the next episode every time we do this. But having said that, this one's really simple for how to sound like you know what you're talking about. We're not really doing any in depth tech stuff; this is just simply a list of classic bikes you need to know about in order to sound like you know what you're talking about. And the genesis of this is we've described a conversation that always happens at old bike nights or in bike shops. When you get a couple old timers together, they start talking bikes. And there's a sort of one-upmanship and negotiation through conversation that's happening where they're sizing each other up. And it's like you can set your watch to it. Every certain number of minutes, one of these bikes will be mentioned and they're just sort of, you know, guys making sure that the guy they're talking to knows about certain other things or so. So the usefulness of this is let's say you're a little bit new into riding and you're kind of intimidated by people that seem to know a lot more about bikes than you. Well, maybe if you research some of these bikes that we're about to mention, well, you might get clued into a few more classic bike things and they might send you down some avenues of research on your own to sort of jump start some of your knowledge about bikes. So we've made a list of some of the most important bikes in history and most importantly, these are sort of sacred cow motorcycles that all the old-timers will just revere till the end of time. Okay, so now we got that out of the way, let's jump into this. So the first ones really obvious the Honda CB750. Mm-hmm. Again, we even mentioned it in this episode because it's that relevant. This is basically the original superbike. It's a bike that came onto the market with a whole lot of technology, a engine and frame setup that just set the standard for a long time, and it made a lot of things before it completely irrelevant almost.
1: Established the air-cooled inline four.
0: Yep. And it also established, like, benchmarks for how much horsepower and torque you need and all of that reliability and styling. Super important bike. Wasn't really respected as the legend it was, I want to say, until, like, the early 2000s. But it was very quickly over the last 15 to 20 years become an absolute legendary motorcycle. So that was pretty quick. This next one's a little bit different, the Vincent Black Shadow. So this is from the late 50s, I believe. I might be wrong. They could have made some in the late 40s. Um, Not super important. But what is important is this was kind of like the CB750, a bike that came along in British bikes that established some new technology and everything and was kind of like the H2R of its time in a way. This was a 1-liter V-twin, and it had uh, a really radically different suspension system from other things at the time. This was a 100-mile-an-hour bike production. It was the fastest thing anyone had ever seen. It was crazy expensive. They didn't make very many of them. This was very much comparable to like an H2R of its time. And they are ridiculously expensive and collectible now. Just unbelievable money for these. $50,000, dollars $70,000. It's just crazy. There's a famous song about Vincent Black Shadows. Um, Yeah. You got anything else to say about the Vincent Black Shadows?
1: mm
0: Okay. So moving right along again, similar, we've got the Ariel Square Four. This is more, for me, more important because it is just a drop dead gorgeous bike. This is from the heyday, the absolute pinnacle, basically, of classic British bikes. And this one is extra British because it has a lot of character in the engine and the engineering. It is a square four motor. It's essentially, think like two Triumph Bonneville motors just smashed together. Then there's this gearing system that links the cams and everything together. I think it's got two crankshafts that are then connected by a gear. I don't know if this is by chain or it's just straight gear connections to it. But very distinct. The four exhaust headers coming out of the engine is just really weird and wacky in a way that no other bike does it. Nothing else looks like an aerial square four.
1: Yeah, it has it the mode the the engine block kind of looks like um what you would expect a a Lego brick for a, a Lego motorcycle to look like. It's this giant it is this giant square block with headers coming out of it,
0: but it's also beautiful. Yeah, it's it's really a crazy bike and it has almost like an early sort of uh, Cleveland or Henderson sort of look about it. Um, and Henderson's not the one I'm thinking of. I think I think the, the Cleveland make of motorcycles in the 50s is kind of that sort of Art Deco American 50s thing, even though it's also very British at the same time. Man, these are like probably one hundred and fifty thousand dollars now as collector items. that's untouchable. If you ever see one, it's something to talk about. Most people will just never see one. This was a, a bike that was ridiculous to own at the time and is just absolute legend now. Okay, so moving on, this one will be really quick and easy to do. The Triumph Bonneville. Specifically the 650, the 60s Triumph Bonnevilles. I Really up to like 71, 72. But the 650 Triumph Bonneville, um, like we said earlier in this episode, a lot of things about it. Was kind of forgotten about again until about the time people started respecting the c b seven fifties as one of those bikes no one expected value to jump so high on or become so collectible or iconic, and then just exploded and is now a legend, never the greatest bike, but quietly just one of the most badass bikes of its time in its market has its place in history. You have to know about this bike even though I think. The new Bonneville is more legitimate. They've been making the new Triumph Bonneville longer than they ever made the old 650 Bonneville in the past. And, you know, when Hinkley Triumph came to market with the new Bonneville in like 2000, they did it the right way where they were selling the new Bonneville next to like the Daytona and other things. So it, it made sense in the lineup. And that's why it's so near and dear to people's hearts. People choose this bike in spite of some of its shortcomings. Well, the new one I'm talking about. But the old bike was just great at the time. So look into it, learn about it, and also probably the most beautiful motorcycle engine of all time. The engine is just wonderful to look at. Okay, and then we got the Bruff Superior. So this is the bike essentially that, uh, well, this is what T. Lawrence died on. So these were really old. They made these in the in the 20s and 30s and 40s, I think. I'm not sure if they made it all the way through the 40s, but I think they did. So Bruff was just a guy that made these boutique bikes, V-twins, very fast for the time. They're kind of like the Duesenbergs of motorcycles. I think that's a good comparison. Every one of them was custom built for the owner who ordered it. They were Unbelievably expensive, handcrafted, high performance bikes pre war, and nothing could touch them. They were a status symbol and they were badass. And there's hardly anything more beautiful than a breath superior. This is one of those things, like those bucket list things. If you ever get to ride one, it's a thing. If someone even will let you ride one because the controls are crazy. And but forget Aerial Square Four. I mean, these are going for two, three hundred thousand dollars as collectibles. They're nuts. I believe the Bruff name has been brought back recently, and it's a very throwback design on them. But it's just a you know, it's a very quiet thing that doesn't have really that much to do with the original name. So looking to Bruff Superiors, super cool. How about the H two?
1: Yeah. So the H two is. A bike that, by any reasonable standard, should never have been made, which was a turbocharged inline-3 750cc UJM. Wait, did I say two-stroke? I, I don't know, but let, now let, you have. Let, let me start that again. Yeah. So the H2 was an insane motorcycle that, by any reasonable standard, should never have been made. A... 750 cc inline three two-stroke motorcycle air-cooled air-cooled which by any reasonable standard should not have been sold to the general public
0: yeah it's legendary because it was quirky to make an inline three two-stroke that large it was really just kawasaki getting into the early phases of its trademark one-upmanship with displacement and horsepower and performance the bike was terrible handling just terrifying to ride but it was the king of straight line speed in its day if yeah. you could
1: ride it well yeah yeah and it also you have to find the power band on a 750 cc two stroke
0: right and then also it established Kawasaki's trademark version of UJM styling. So it's a styling icon as well.
1: A gigantic, ridiculously hard-to-ride bike, ridiculously fast, that also came with only a single front disc, with the second front disc as an option.
0: Yeah. Well, no, that was the Z1. That was the Z1. No, the H2 no, no. which is always that a was single. no, the H2.
1: Yeah, the, uh, the H no, the H2 was a single front disc, but you could get a second front disc as an option. Oh, okay. It wasn't factory standard. Okay,
0: gotcha. All right, and then let's see here. Do you want to just cover the GT750 at the same time? I mean, anyone that's been listening to recent episodes should be up on this, but we got to throw this in as well.
1: Yeah. So the GT750 was an interesting bike in that it was a se- it was also an inline 3 uh 750 cc two stroke but its quirk was that it was water cooled and there weren't a lot if any other water cooled two strokes being produced at the time right but it was also somewhat done in the styling of the cb 750 because that had been the bee's knees for the last five years so it's also an inline three with a three into one into four exhaust so if you look out if you look at the back of the bike you've got two exhausts coming off each side even though it's a three-cylinder motor
0: yeah just go back a couple episodes to the one it's all it's about to get real brummy in here it's called where we talk with emma from motorcycles and misfits and then You can go back even further to episode, like, 17 or whatever one it was. ten? Was Was it episode 10? Yeah, there we go. And we talk about it even more. Or, Or just do yourself a favor and just Google all sorts of things about it, because it's something you should know about. Okay, I should have lumped this next one in with the Bonneville, but I didn't. The Norton Commando. So, this was a 750. And sort of existed in that same space as the Triumph Bonneville, but this one had more performance, and this was more expensive, and this was the big race-winning bike. Now, the big thing about Norton's is they weren't – the Norton Commando was not as beautiful as the Triumph, but it was faster when you had it all set up right. I, this is a bike that will leak on you. This is a bike that – this is a British bike that does have reliability problems. This isn't the greatest looking bike, but man, when you got one of these set up correctly, it was wonderful. And there were a lot of races at the Isle of Man won by this thing, and that's why it's so important. It wasn't even really a very common bike for people to have, but you have to know about this bike if you give a shit at all about Isle of Man and British racing in general. And I think also this is – I think Che Guevara had one of these as well, like a really early version of the commando, but I could be wrong on that. I'm not sure. Okay. And then let's do something American to end this off. You should know about old inline-four F-head Indians. So, you know, Indians come back and everyone's like, oh, Indian, like, you know, the styling, the chief, like plenty of people know about that. Like they're sort of vaguely familiar with the Bonneville, but something that set Indian apart very early on were these straight inline four engines that they fitted to these great big cruiser bikes. So think like the Triumph Rocket three right now with that inline, that giant inline three cylinder. Well, they the Indians have like, you know, one liter or whatever inline fours. So, you know, cylinder one is like right next to your nuts and cylinder four is like right behind the handlebars, you know, just going straight. Uh, But they were F-head, which is a little bit unusual. So the thing about F-head engines is you've got the intake valve up top on the engine where you would normally expect it to be. And then the exhaust valve is, like, down below where, like, a two-stroke header would come out, right? Like, so, Mm -hmm. so you've got inlet over exhaust. And so it's a different kind of airflow through the engine. There's some advantages, disadvantages. It's kind of not unlike side valve. It's one of those just weird things. But this was... A really nice performing engine when Harley was doing side valve stuff and everything. And this is the heyday of Indian before they got bought by Royal Enfield and they started putting bullshit leaky twins in all the Indians. If you really want to, like, impress someone and know about Indian stuff, read up on the old inline four F head engines and you might just sound like you know what you're talking about. Okay, and I think that's a good way to end this, unless you got something else, Swiggy.
1: Well, if we're going to throw one more bike in...
0: Sure, why not? ...that
1: covers a lot of history, and there's a lot before and there's a lot after it that you can dig into. I'll throw in the Royal Enfield Interceptor.
0: Oh, yes, 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 yes. Uh, I don't know if this is absolute required, but this was sort of when Royal Enfield got their act together but unfortunately got their act together a little bit too late yeah it was the, it was one of the best british bikes ever made but sadly no one it never really was around long enough for anyone to realize it
1: mm-hmm. well this was this was kind of late 60s doing you know 13 second quarter miles in that 600 Fifty to seven hundred fifty cc range. It was a it was an interesting bike, but it's also kind of they're really just tuning what they already had with a few you know kind of getting over pre-unit construction.
0: Well, it was a radically different engine than they had done before. When they went to this twin, they fixed all the leaking problems. They went to a vertically rather than horizontally split um, casing Mm -hmm. and. They figured out how to resolve cooling problems. so They didn't have to do that thing where they meshed both cylinders together. i mean, sorry. They managed to mesh both cylinders together rather than have to have them be two completely separate um, jugs. There's a lot about it. And I think Emma said a lot of great things about this on one of the Misfits um, PayPal only, not PayPal, Patreon only episodes. So reference that for more cool information. But also they've just brought this bike back. The Indian owned version of Royal Enfield has, and it looks pretty faithful to what the old interceptor was. Kind of just generically, ultimately British looking and a pretty good looking bike overall, I have to say. So that might be something a lot of people know about Royal Enfield for the bullets. But if you want to throw a little extra icing on the cake throw in the Interceptor, and and now we'll say, if you do that, you might just sound like you know what you're talking about. All right, cool. So I think we're at the end of this episode now. I'm going to remind everybody that you should send us a rating and review on iTunes and send us an email. If we've gotten anything wrong or misspoken anything, send us an email and correct us. We will not take it badly, trust me. Or you know, just send us an email to say hi and tell us about what you're what you're riding, what your rig is, what your gear is. We honestly are super interested in that, and we want to know,
1: especially if you're a new rider. We love getting emails from new riders,
0: yeah, we like to constantly reground ourselves. It's pretty easy to get deep in all this bike stuff and kind of forget what the average person is thinking about what the average person is into it's important to us to be kind of connected with you know to have our finger on the pulse so if you're a new writer you are just as interesting to us as people have been writing for decades so having said that i'm going to remind everyone again to stay safe and stay tuned and let's run the outro and i don't want to die Just want to ride on my Mm -hmm. motorcycle.